ask you to take, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Luke, but we're still here in chapter 6. Let me remind you of the context uh, that we saw leading up into the beginning of this chapter, the increasing hostility between uh, Jesus and his adversaries, some of the religious leaders, though the hostility was not coming from Jesus, but from them, and we saw that it ended in verse 11. Uh, of chapter 6, that they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do. In the midst of that conflict, Jesus went out and spent an evening in prayer and called his disciples to him. And we will pick up today in chapter 17 as he comes down from the mountain of prayer and consecration and begins to preach a sermon. In Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17, and we'll read through verse 26. I want to deal with something that I'm not planning on dealing with during the sermon today. That is uh, because it has no practical difference in the way that we understand this passage. But as we begin to look at this passage before us, there are some very obvious similarities between what we find here, what Luke says is a sermon on a level place, and what Matthew tells us is a sermon on the mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And through the centuries faithful men have debated back and forth. There are some very uh, clear similarities, especially in the Beatitudes that we'll see today. There are some very clear differences, and I'm okay if you want to interpret it either way. Um, I, I could go either way. My interpretation, my understanding of it is that it is a different sermon, um, and, uh, and for a few reasons. One, because uh, in Matthew that sermon is... Uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he goes up on a mountain and begins to teach. And here, it's somewhere in the middle after he has called his disciples, and he comes down to preach. And so some people have said, well, maybe there's a level spot somewhere halfway up the mountain. Who knows? Who knows? Um, and you can interpret it either way. But what I don't want to do is get into this state where we look at this and Matthew 5 and start to say, well, which one is the real one? because they're both the real one. Uh, this is one of the reasons that I think this actually was a different sermon. I love to go to different churches uh, because I get to reuse material for a new audience, and pastors do that all the time. If you're not aware, that happens. It's, it's a good thing for pastors to be able to do that, and Jesus certainly did that. He went around proclaiming the same message to lots of different people. And so let's not get mired. This is what I want to avoid today. Now let's not get mired in the question of which one's the right list. Let's just read Luke. And let's see what the Lord presents to us today uh, and see what he has to say through his word. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to read together Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17 and going to verse 26. And before we do that, please join me again in prayer. Oh, glorious and righteous Lord, we thank you for your blessing given to us, we who do not deserve it, but because of Christ are considered blessed. Remind us, O oh Lord, of the comfort of the Spirit and the blessing of the kingdom and even the blessing of being spurned and hated on account of Christ. Help us to long for you as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Help our souls to cry out for you in a parched land. Even today as we hear from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place. 
with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you. When they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. If you are a baseball fan in Boston, you are aware that Tuesday is opening day at Fenway Park. And that means that if you happen to have a few extra hundred dollars laying around that you don't know what to do with, you can probably still get a few seats up in the bleachers. And you won't see much uh, from up there, uh, but you'll see the highlights, and the hot dog vendors and the, and the peanut salesmen will be up there, and the diehard fans will be up there with you, and, and at some point, I'm sure, some point uh, during the game, somewhere up on the Jumbotron, the camera will zoom in and show you a couple who booked their tickets months in advance. And they're down there, right almost on the baseline, on the dugout, right next to the Red Sox. And they're having themselves a, a great time. And suddenly, as you look on that Jumbotron, the, the man and that couple will get down on one knee, and everyone will start to, uh, to fawn around them and point up at the screen, even though the, the action's right in front of them, and the screen will read those fateful words, Donna, will you marry me? Because, of course, her name is Donna. And you've seen that sort of thing happen at, at a baseball game or some public event, and I suppose uh, that there are people for which that would be a wonderful thing. Maybe their first date was three years ago at opening day at Fenway Park. Maybe there are some couples that love baseball just about as much as they love one another, but I always feel a little bit awkward when those things happen. I'm not sure what to think of them. That's because this, this moment when that happens, that's a very important time. This question, this, uh, this engagement, this is one of the most intimate events that has happened for this couple yet in their lives and is being broadcast before 37,000 other people who are just there trying to take in a ball game. The crowd is there, and the people are excited, but they're not excited for what's happening in that, uh, that stadium box there. They're excited for something completely different. The kids uh, up in the stands couldn't care less about what's happening, and whether Donna says yes, they're there because they think maybe today will be the day that they can catch that pop fly. And they're excited for something completely different. Now, as we look at this passage before us, I want you to keep opening day in the back of your mind. 
And that is because what we see here is the beginning of this very important, monumental conversation, this sermon that Jesus is preaching, uh, and preaching between him and his disciples, but it happens in the context of a much larger crowd. And they're there, and they're excited, but they're not excited so much for what Jesus is saying to this group that's gathered close by where he is. They're hoping to catch the equivalent of a spiritual baseball, but they have no idea the gravity of what Jesus is saying in these words that we have here. And now, by now, this scene is familiar, because everywhere we've seen that Jesus goes, the crowds are sure to follow, and the multitude presses around Jesus on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The multitude gathers in, and the crowd turns a private home into a standing room only event. The multitude gathers, uh, and they press into the synagogues in every town that Jesus preaches. And even after Jesus spends a night in prayer and ordaining his 12 apostles, and he comes down from the mountain, there is that ever-present crowd still waiting and watching and trying to catch some scrap that falls from the table of Jesus. And they're there, Luke tells us. As Jesus' influence is reaching a tipping point, people have walked for days. Important people from down in Jerusalem and peasants from Judea and Gentiles all the way up in the northern reaches on the coastal lands from Tyre and Sidon. They're there, Luke tells us in verse 18, to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And Luke goes on to tell us what has also become typical of Jesus' ministry, and that is that he extends mercy and he extends compassion to everyone who gathers to him and everyone who seeks it. Read in verse 19 that all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all, and we've seen this before. The crowds are flocking to Jesus, and the crowds are receiving ministry at his hand, but very quickly, Luke changes the perspective, and he shows us something much more significant in verse 20, much more significant than exorcisms and healing power. Take a look. Verse 20 says, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. Don't miss that tiny little phrase. Don't overlook that little thing, because if you overlook that little thing, you miss the point of the whole uh, sermon. If you don't see Jesus focusing his gaze and aiming his sermon at his disciples, you miss the point of the whole thing. Yes, there are crowds who have gathered and they want to be healed. Yes, they were helped and they were delivered from their diseases and set free from oppressive demons, but only the disciples receive the blessing of Jesus' message. The crowds have gathered to receive his ministry, but the disciples receive Jesus' message. There were lots who overheard, I'm sure. You might imagine as Jesus comes down that they're probably in in sort of eccentric circles, starting from the inside and working out. The 12 are probably right next to Jesus, and then outside of them, the gathered disciples, and then outside of them, the crowd. And and Jesus' voice would have carried, and he wasn't trying to be secretive. It wasn't like one of those spy movies where they come into a room and they turn on the radio and they whisper in hushed tones. Jesus isn't being secretive with this message, but he is aiming it at his disciples. He's pointing it directly at those who have become his followers. And this is typical of Jesus' ministry. John said that when Jesus came, he would 
do something. He would do something to gather the wheat into his barn and also to prepare the chaff for the fires of God's judgment. And that happens as Jesus ministers and preaches. It happens as he shows the power of the Holy Spirit at work within him and the multitudes see it. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, but I've got something just for you. This is how it happened with Jesus' parables, you remember. Matthew chapter, te- chapter 13, and all the disciples are asking Jesus, why all of the parables? Why do you speak not in just these homey sort of agricultural metaphors that everybody gets? That wasn't their question. Their question was, why do you speak in such cryptic images that nobody understands? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 13? Verse 13, he said, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, but, and here's another benediction, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. We tend to get this idea that Jesus goes around throughout the countryside and he's ministering and he's preaching and he is casting his gospel net as wide as he possibly can, almost as though Jesus is desperate and he's hoping beyond hope, maybe someone will hear and come in and maybe I can gather in as many as I can. And yet we see Jesus being selective here, being exclusive. Jesus knew how to speak to expose sin, and he knew how to teach to bring about new life, and he knew those in whom the Holy Spirit was working regeneration, and yet we see him here playing favorites. That's what we would call it. It's almost a private conversation. They're alone among the crowd. Imagine those teenage twin daughters who by now know one another so well that they speak and it's almost as though they've got a code language all their own and everybody else hears it, but nobody understands what's being said. And Jesus has his disciples here and you need to see, verse 20, in the midst of the crowd, in the midst of the people, pressing in and trying to get to him, he lifts up his eyes on his disciples and he leads them through this world. This is typical of Jesus' ministry. And he takes his people aside and he says, I've got something for you. Only you're going to understand it. Everybody else might hear it, but they're not really going to get it. But it's a message for his disciples. And it's the way that Jesus still works. He's smack dab in the midst of a watching world as people are scratching their heads, as they're looking for something that they can't quite grasp. Jesus speaks direction to his disciples. And if you tried to explain what it is that you get when you open your scriptures and you read the Bible and the way that it changes you and the way that it exposes you and the way that it comforts you, they're not going to understand. It's not because you're better than they are. It's not because you're smart and they're stupid. It's because God has spoken. Jesus has spoken and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. And Jesus singles out his disciples in the midst of the world and he speaks to them and he leads them. And each morning you sit over God's word with your cup of tea and the Holy Spirit is changing you. And he's directing your heart to him and he's reshaping your affections after the image of Christ and don't expect the crowds to get it. In the midst of a watching world, Jesus is leading his disciples and he's reshaping their lives to fit the pattern 
of his kingdom. And that means something for the way that we interpret the sermon that's before us. And this is perhaps the most important thing that we can say as we get started in uh, this sermon of Jesus. And that is that this list of blessings and woes that Jesus spoke, this is not a list of how you become a disciple. That is the way that many people have interpreted this throughout the ages, as though Jesus is establishing some new law. He's come down from the mountain like Moses, and with the word of God, here's what you have to do to be blessed. You've got to be at least this poor to ride this ride. You've got to be at least this hated. You've got to be at least this hungry before you get to take part in what I'm doing, and that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying this is how you become a disciple. This message isn't about entrance. This is about expectation. What should Jesus' disciples expect to find in the world? How should we expect to be received by a world that does not love the Savior that has called us to follow him? You can expect cost and affliction and hardship, and blessing. That's what Jesus is saying. He wants them to be aware of what they're getting into. If you're going to follow Jesus in this life, you will encounter a world who doesn't know what to think of somebody whose hope and joy does not lie in possessions and popularity. What are we to do with this person who puts all their hope on something that can't be seen and can't be empirically proven, they'll say. I don't even have a category for that. And Jesus says, you ought to know that's what you're getting into. This is what you ought to expect. And he takes his disciples to the side and he said, this is blessing for you. And you need to know this before it all gets started. He's just called these 12. He's just beginning this new thing, the formation of his church on earth. And he says, this is where blessing is to be found. And what will it cost you if your morality comes from the scriptures instead of from society? What will it look like if you live so much like Jesus that people hate you the same way that they hated him? That's what this list is about. It's a word of comfort from Jesus to his disciples. It's a word of warning also, not to be conformed to the desires of the world. And so we want to look... Uh, just the beginning of, of this sermon, it stretches to the end of the chapter, but here in the beginning, Jesus' message is in two parts. It is in benediction, and it is in lamentation. It is in blessing, and it is in woe. And this is the way that Jesus prepares his people for life in the kingdom. And so in verses 20 to 23, Jesus is telling us, blessed are those disciples who lose the world for Jesus' sake. That's how we could summarize verses 20 to 23. Blessed are those disciples who lose the world for Jesus' sake. And this, again, is why it's so important that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Because starting in verse 20, Jesus is giving us a list of all the most desirable states of existence in the world in which we inhabit. Poverty and hunger and mourning, and hatred. And it is completely opposite of what the world thinks is so wonderful. Here are the four things that summarize everything that natural man tries to avoid. And Jesus says, this is where blessing is to be found. This is where the good life is to be found. 
There's these things that everybody wants to get away from, and it's completely backwards. It is upside down from everything that our instincts and our biology and our societal influences would tell us are really the good things to go after in life. And perhaps your mind floats back somewhere to your freshman year psychology class, and you have in mind that triangle that that outlines Abraham Maslow and his hierarchy of human needs. Oh, my. What blessedness, what glory in the hierarchy of human needs. And only if you can reach to the pinnacle, then then you will enjoy the good life, the blessed life. Maslow called it self-actualization, blessing by any other name. And what does it take to climb to the pinnacle of that hierarchy? Well, you start at the bottom, right? Physiological needs, the basics. You need food and clothing and shelter and, and then maybe security of those things. Maybe the kind of freedom of choice that comes with with financial capital and being able to make choices for yourself and take opportunities and you begin to ascend a little bit more and a little bit more and then you get closer to those higher needs and, and you come into love and friendship and respect of other people and there it is. You've made it. Just like when you're following your GPS to a destination and you finally get there and I love when mine tells me, you have arrived. And psychological man pats himself on the back and says, we've arrived. We've found the secret of the entire universe. And what is it? It's self-actualization. The blessed life. And Jesus' list of blessing turns that pyramid on its head. And it topples it over. And he tells us something completely upside down. Blessed are you who are poor, he says. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when men think that you are the scum of the earth. That's what the good life looks like, says Jesus. When people hate you, and when all of this happens because of the sake of knowing Christ, that's the key. That's what makes these upside-down blessings worth anything. These blessings are true for disciples. For those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what it might cost them. When I was a boy, I used to enjoy putting together uh, model cars. The whole thing came in one little box and three sheets of plastic parts, and you'd follow the instructions, and you'd try not to get too much glue on the windshield because then it got all smeary and it was terrible. But the more complex, as I got older, the more complex those models got, the more important the instructions were, Because without those instructions, without that cohesive key, it was just an empty box of plastic pieces that didn't have any semblance together. And when we try to remove Jesus from this list of backward blessings, that's what we have. And we're scrambling and trying to decide, how's poverty a blessing? I don't know, I see the commercials on television and the children are there and they've got no shoes and their bellies are distended and you think if there's... If there is no Christ, how's that a blessing? And it's not. There's no blessing just in poverty. There's no blessing just in being hated. There's no blessing just in mourning for the sake of mourning. But these things are good for disciples. These things are good when you know Christ and when you follow him. He's the key. That's what uh, knowing Jesus is to these blessings. 
shows up in the end in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's the secret to blessing. It shows up at the beginning when Jesus lifts up his eyes to speak to the disciples. It shows up at the end when he attaches blessing to loss for the sake of his name. And all throughout the rest, there's this understanding that these are not open statements of blessing just broadcast upon the airwaves of humanity. These are blessings for disciples. Listen to the way J.C. Ryle puts it. It says, we must not suppose for a moment that the mere fact of being poor and hungry and sorrowful and hated by men will entitle anyone to lay claim to Christ's blessing. The poverty here spoken of is poverty accompanied by grace. The want is want entailed by a faithful adherence to Jesus. The afflictions are the afflictions of the gospel. The persecution is persecution for the Son of Man's sake. Such want, such poverty, such affliction and persecution are the inevitable consequences of faith in Christ from the beginning of Christianity. These are the persons to whom the great head of the church says, Blessed are you. This is what we find. The message of Jesus, blessed are those disciples who lose what the world loves for the sake of Jesus. And this is how Jesus prepares his disciples for life in the kingdom, and he wants you to be prepared too. And so he tells us, blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom of God. You may not count it poverty, but I know for a fact that there are people in this room who have passed up job offers and promotions because the difficulties or the demands of the job really ran counter to God's calling for his people. There may be others in this room who aren't aware, but have been silently rejected in favor of the innocuous unbeliever who simply won't ruffle any feathers in the workplace and won't be talking all the time about Jesus. It's not poverty. What if that should happen to you? What if the day comes in our pluralistic culture that in order to keep your job, you have to keep your religion to yourself? Some of you already work there, don't you? That in order to keep your job, you have to just keep silent, or maybe it goes even further that you've got to sign on to some agenda that has nothing to do with Christ and in fact flies in the face of the God of creation. And you've got to toe the corporate line with all sorts of inclusivity and social causes de jour. What will you do then? What will your recourse be then? What will you think then? Oh, maybe you'll lawyer up. Maybe you'll take it all the way to the Supreme Court. Maybe you'll call every news outlet that you can. Maybe you will broadcast the evils of the oppression of Christianity in our culture. Or maybe you will do like Paul and you will willingly suffer the loss of all things for the sake of knowing Christ. That's what our brothers and sisters are doing in Laos today. And they are poor. And their children are hungry. And their Bibles and their churches are being confiscated. And what should we think of them? Should we pray for ourselves that that never comes to where we are? Or should we wonder 
why God's blessing of affliction and loss should come to them and not to us, while nominal Christians grow fat and dumb and happy like the cows of Bashan grazing on the hills of Samaria. And if you've been in our Sunday school class on Amos, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Blessed are disciples who are poor, Jesus says. Because then your vision of the kingdom isn't obstructed by house and car and bank accounts and student loans and pension funds and timeshares and more and more and more and more. Blessed are the disciples who are poor, Jesus says, for the sake of Christ. Blessed are you when you are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. I think this also was meant literally that the disciples would go hungry for the sake of knowing Christ. But we can, we can interpret it metaphorically. We can interpret it spiritually together with Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus said. Oh, what a blessing to be like David. What a blessing to live with a longing that you know the things of this life cannot contain. To say with the psalmist, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you and my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. What a blessing not to be like so many who try to ignore the gnawing existential hunger of the soul by attacking it with little snacks that can never satisfy. Hobbies. Achievements. Sordid relationships that go belly up and leave you just as hungry, if not hungrier, when it's all over. What a blessing to identify that the hunger you have is greater than anything this world can offer. To be content to sit and to wait with that hunger, knowing that you will be satisfied, that Christ will come back and gather his people to himself and they will eat and drink at the wedding supper of the Lamb and forever be satisfied by his love and his presence. What a blessing to be hungry now, he says. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Let's not misunderstand this one. There are many Christians, and sometimes I'm one of them, who think that the sum total of sanctification is, is a sour face. And how serious you are about uh, your spiritual walk with the Lord. That's not what this is telling us. A cheerful heart is good medicine, says the Scripture. Jesus isn't against uh, laughter, but the Lord says there's a blessing in taking seriously the realities that the world likes to laugh away and the world pretends they don't exist. Like the reality that the entire world is in rebellion against the God who created all things of nothing in the space of six days and all very good. The reality that sin has shattered lives and broken homes and families. The reality that human sin actually is behind all suffering and all injustice, and all oppression. The reality that it is appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. And the reality that there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, for God shows no partiality. What a blessing now to weep. We take a moment to take that seriously. To weep over our sin. Weep over the sin of those around us and to weep to such an extent that we would intercede for them. To weep to the point of prayer. 
to weep knowing that there is a Lord who has promised that he will come back and he will wipe every tear of suffering and sadness and sin from the eyes of his people to know that there is coming a day when we will laugh in his presence. What a blessing to weep now, says Jesus. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Here, I think, is where we're really challenged to ask whether we believe this word. Because this is where it's going to show up for us. Maybe not some of these other ones, maybe not in our lifetimes, maybe being a Christian doesn't actually lead to poverty and and physical hunger, but if you're a faithful Christian, even in our society, you're beginning to see some of this. You Christians who are students in high school and college, don't you know some of this? Being a Christian doesn't, doesn't cost you poverty, it doesn't cost you a job or a home, but it costs you popularity. And in high school, that's a big thing. In fact, for the rest of your life, that's a big thing. What will people think of me? What will they say of me? Blessed are you when they exclude you, Jesus says. Blessed are you when you become the butt of the inside joke and everybody's snickering behind your back. If it's on account of Christ, blessed are you. Blessed are you and your faith makes you a fool in the eyes of the world. Parents of unbelieving children, you know this. You try to speak the truth in love the best you can. And even from your children, they wouldn't call it hatred, they wouldn't call it reviling or spurning. Dismissal, maybe. I don't want to hear any more of that, Mom. Enough with that Jesus stuff. It's not for me. I'm glad that it's for you. That's great. But stop trying to shove it down my throat. Blessed are you, says Jesus. You believers who are bold enough to speak the gospel in public know this, and you've had a taste of this. There are obnoxious Christians who are hated for their personalities, and probably rightly so. There are lots of them. I may be one of them, and so may you. Let's not be hated for the wrong things, but when you're hated for the sake of Christ, when you're hated for speaking the truth, when you're hated for proclaiming that there is a Lord who has come and given himself to redeem us from the power and the guilt of sin, and the world dismisses you, and they try to paint you as everything that's wrong and closed-minded, blessed are you when they revile you. Jesus says it only serves to identify you with Jesus Christ and with all the true prophets who are pointing in his direction from the foundation of the world. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Blessed are those who lose the world for the sake of Jesus. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to expect. Blessed are the disciples who lose the world for the sake of Jesus. There is great gain in Christ, greater than all you will be called upon to lose. I don't want to take much more time, but once you've understood the blessings, the woes begin to interpret themselves because there's a, there's a correspondence for every action, an equal, equal and opposite reaction of these woes. And if the blessing of Christ comes to disciples who are poor and hungry and weeping and hated, then woe to those who are rich and full and laughing and popular. Woe to those who are satisfied with what the world can offer. That's the message 
verses 24 to 26. Woe to those who are satisfied with what the world can offer. Now this, this word woe, it's one that lives sort of on the borderlands. There's that spot in uh, Colorado and New Mexico somewhere that you can put your foot on four states at once. Woe is like that. It lives in several different spheres. In the Old Testament, on the lips of the prophets, it lives in the sphere of curse. And Isaiah will say, woe to the nations. And Amos will say, woe to Israel. And the other prophets will say, woe to you because judgment is coming because you have spurned the Lord. And that's one of the understandings. But it also shows up a sort of sad lamentation. How sad, how despairing. It shows up on Jesus' lips. And he speaks to those who ought to know better. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Because you profess to know and to love the law of God, and yet with your mouth you profess one thing, and with your lives you do another, and woe to you. How sad. There is something tragically sad about hypocrisy. There's something tragically ugly about those who profess to honor the Lord with their mouths while their hearts are far from Him. And here Jesus is professing sadness and pronouncing woe on those who claim to serve the living God, but have no taste for the food and the drink that he offers at his table. Woe to you who are rich, he says, for you have received your consolation. This is the worst thing about trusting in riches, says Jesus. This is the worst thing in contenting ourselves with the pursuit of possessions, is that Jesus says that's as good as it will ever get, that pursuit. It's like the all-you-can-eat buffet that leaves you stuffed to the gills at 12.30 and by 2 o'clock you're snacking. That's what it is. Woe to you who are rich because that's your consolation. What if in your hobby and in your collection you received everything you ever wanted? What if you collected that very last piece and you sealed it away in a room where no one could enter and no dust could ever get in and you knew every detail of your collection down to the nth degree and every penny that it was worth, what then? Would you be enough? Would you have enough? Would you be content? You know that saying that probably was never actually asked of John Rockefeller. How much money is enough? And you know the answer that he probably never actually said, but it's true nonetheless, just a little bit more. And it's true, isn't it? And it leaves you empty. So woe to you who are rich. And Paul tells Timothy that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil through which some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Woe to you who are rich, says Jesus. And woe to you who are full now. How sad. How sad is the self-professed disciple who has no anticipation for anything more than C.S. Lewis's mud pies in the slums. Woe to the one who cannot bring themselves to raise their eyes to the heavens where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, where the Bible tells us our life is hid with Him there. That's where it's all going, and that's what it's all about. And yet, how sad not to have a hunger for anything greater than what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and feel. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This is the warning for our generation. 
the perpetual scroll and filling our time with memes and images and video clips no longer than 13 seconds and binge watching and endless scrolling and reducing life to one amusement on top of another amusement such that we crowd out any time and any space for solid reflection on the word of God and the things that truly matter. This is a condemnation of our sinful frivolity going astray after the things that are just one bobble after another. How sad, says Jesus, when you laugh, when everything becomes a joke and there's no sobriety, when you don't know what it is to mourn and to suffer and to repent. Woe to you who laugh, he says. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. It's a good thing to have a good reputation. A good name is... More to be desired than great riches, says Proverbs, and a wonderful thing for an elder to have good repute among those who are outside of them, but woe to you when all men. See, there's the catch, isn't it? Woe to you when you are universally popular. What a sad thing to be universally popular. What a shame to so vigorously pursue the pleasing of other people that you cannot bring yourself to speak words of truth for fear that someone will think that you are disagreeable. Another commentator puts it this way, it can scarcely happen that all men will speak well of you without some sacrifice of principle. It is the false prophets who win acclaim, and a true prophet is too uncomfortable to be popular. And Jesus says, woe to you when all men speak well of you, just like they did of the false prophets. And the Lord is issuing a warning to the followers on the fringes. It's a world of warning in a word, I'm sorry, it's a word of warning and it's a word of comfort. The warning is that sadness awaits those who will not bear the price of what discipleship actually will cost them. But the comfort comes in knowing that blessing is to be found in Jesus, no matter what you may, be, may stand to lose in the process. And so brothers and sisters, blessed, blessed are you disciples, excuse my fumbling of words, Blessed are you disciples who lose the world for Jesus' sake. This is the message today for Christ's people. Blessed are you when you lose the world for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would train us to find all blessing and joy everlasting in your presence. To hold with open hand the blessings of this life that can so easily become a snare to us. We pray that you would forgive us for the sins which have been exposed and cover us with the righteousness of Christ so that you will draw us to your table to give us food that satisfies. O Lord of glory and grace, we thank you for the table which we will come to which proclaims to us the truth of the gospel. We thank you for Christ given for us to draw us to yourself. And so we pray, O oh Lord, give us a hunger for him and a hunger for your righteousness and a joy in Jesus Christ. Keep us looking to you and not to ourselves, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.